0: Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachiko Sassiri. Today, we'll be talking about the quantified self-movement, the movement to gather data about ourselves and use it in the quest for self-improvement. Improvements in technology have been key to the expansion of the quantified self-movement and the mainstreaming of some of its ideas over the past five years. Sensors are smaller and cheaper than ever. Our ability to store large amounts of information has been enhanced many times over, and easy borrowing for tech companies
1: and startups has led to the proliferation of tracking devices and apps. In today's episode, we'll start off with some background on the quantified self-movement, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll then, no joke, move on to a discussion of whether we are all cyborgs. Finally, we'll examine what the future looks like in light of our quantifiable data-driven inclinations.
0: So, Marie and I thought it would make sense and also be fun to start off by sharing some of the ways in which we track ourselves and why. I can start off by sharing some of my favorites. Okay, go for it. Uh, (laughs) If I don't scare you. Okay, so I will reveal myself to be the person that, like, loves all personal tracking. I always have. So, Okay. There's like lots of little different bits of this. The ones I use or have used are the Fitbit, Moment, the billable hour tracking that we used to have in my law firm, my period tracker, and Gmail meter, the app Moment, which was kind of endorsed and recommended by a podcast that uh, we listened to called Note to Self, which used to be called New Tech City. And they had a movement where they encouraged you to kind of be online less. And one of the ways in which they told you to do this was using this app that tells you how much you've been using your phone. So I look at it periodically. It's not very helpful to me because there's so many different ways in which I use my phone mm-hmm. that, like, it's not helpful to know, like, if I'm just like streaming a ton of TV because I'm like tired and bored. I don't think that's bad. I'm just tired and bored. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I think that's kind of the point of Moment, Naren. I know because <laughs> you're <laughs> supposed like, to be like, myself. I don't know, painting a picture while you're tired and bored, or. Something stretching. Totally
0: something. fair. The 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 kind of program that led to this, their recommendation of this was called Born and Brilliant. And exactly. the idea was that you are supposed to be smarter if you get bored. So uh maybe I'm just a bad audience for that. <laughs> um for a while I used this thing called Gmail Meter, which fetches your email and like tells you who you email with the most. Huh. I wanted to pull up the very first one I found. Because for some reason I stopped doing it. But the the first one I pulled up was from like May of 2013. Mm-hmm. And two of the four top threads I had that month had to do with your 30th birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like I thought that was always such a fun way to see like which of my friends I was communicating yeah. with. And this reminded me that I want to like pick that up again. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I forgot to say that I have been working... The last couple of months, and I also found a way to keep track of like my activities every day, and I kind of co- color coded them. But I will—I <laughs> wish I was kidding, but I'm not. And like, I have like social job networking mm-hmm. um, experience, which is like stuff I wouldn't do if I was like normally working, but is fulfilling. I have one for in theory. Yay. Um I will say I did look and, and I was like, at some point I was like, oh, I've been hanging out too much and not really focusing on my job search. Like I got to do that just by glancing at my like unique color coding situation.
1: Hmm. Oh, there you go.
0: So how about you, Maria? Like how do you keep track of your life?
1: Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a user of the Google Calendar and yes. I have different kinds of tasks that are color coded um, and I make lists and I check them off. But otherwise, I'm not a very uh, kind of active pursuant of the quantified self-movement. Um, I don't have a Fitbit. I did download Moments to see my cell phone usage, but then it took up too many megabytes on my cell phone, which I wanted to put music <laughs> on instead, so I deleted it. Um, <laughs> so I don't really do it very much. And there's, um, I mean, I definitely am like obsessed with. Data in the same way a lot of people get. Um, So, for example, our, in theory, website uh, metrics, I'm always checking them and interested in how they fluctuate depending on different things that we do and different days of the week and what's happening in people's lives and that kind of thing. So I find it fascinating. But uh, in terms of my own kind of output, I don't know if I'm just, like, lazy or if I... I mean, I also have some kind of, like, philosophical concerns about quantifying myself in all of these ways so um so yeah I try not to do it too much but I I mean I do like the normal stuff right like I weigh myself when I remember to. Great so we both
0: have different ways we find this to be useful but I'd love to hear more about kind of your reservations and thoughts about this as we go along for sure. Cool. Maybe I'm being a little reckless and overly zealous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Work it, make it, do it, makes us older, better, faster, stronger. Not, it, not, not that, that, make that, that, that don't kill it, me, it only make makes us stronger. stronger.
0: It might be useful just to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the quantified self movement. Yeah, I can um, say that I
1: didn't actually know what it was. Like, I knew that there were all these things out there that you could use to quantify different parts of your life, but I didn't know it was a whole movement.
0: It's a whole thing. So, so you know, well before we started calling it that – you know, people have tracked different things about themselves for a long time. Mm-hmm. Women tracked their period and fertility thousands of years ago; like mm-hmm. that was useful information. Training logs for athletes mm-hmm. were have always been a really big deal, but there have always been ways in which people um, have been gathering information about themselves and their bodies mm-hmm. toward a particular end. But the the term "quantified self." was created by Gary Wolf and Kevin Kelly, who are writers for Wired magazine in around 2008. Mm -hmm. And it basically spawned the global movement of meetups and conferences and meetings of both users of this information and people who created this technology To determine best practices and share methods and give advice on self-improvement through this data and these metrics. And I'd say more recently, it's a term used and it's just been mainstream. So it doesn't necessarily mean that particular specific movement or individuals, but just The movement of us gathering information. And and Apple launched its health suite in 2014. Mm -hmm. And so people were able to track their steps and their weight and other things through that. There are other fitness trackers that have gained pretty serious traction, like Jawbone Up and Fitbit and Nike Fuel. And so the technology has gotten better. More Mm -hmm. and more people are talking about it. And there really is the swelling of the movement whatever you want to call is the movement so I mean I've even heard and we talk about industrial complexes so much we've heard you know lots of people talk about the tracking industrial complex Mm so there's lots of different ways to describe it we're going to use the the term the quantified self in a very loosey-goosey way probably not necessarily aligned with that specific group of people who are like meeting up
1: all the time but Mm -hmm. about this this more recent movement yeah I mean like i Bought my grandfather a Fitbit for Christmas yeah. with my siblings like last year. And he's like super into it, which is adorable. <laughs> yeah. But he's definitely not attending any kind of events in Silicon Valley. Yet. <laughs> you never know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Go in places. Some people think this is all super great. It helps people document and diagnose and improve their health and actual social behaviors. They feel more in control over their well being, they feel more empowered to make change. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if that's how you feel about kind of any of the ways in which you document yourself, but there's a lot of language around this and certainly in the marketing of, of these products, mm-hmm. especially with respect to sleep and, and other stuff.
1: Yeah, I don't know. that that The language of that stuff is is, is actually, actually precisely what kind of freaks me out about it. Yes, <laughs> yes, talk about that. <laughs> um, because I, I feel like that kind of portioning out of the self and the idea that – everything ultimately can be broken down into factoids or bits of information. And, you know, the idea that data or information at the end of the day is kind of the true composition of everything. I just don't agree with that. And the more that we kind of use those metaphors as a way to break up who we are into these discrete pieces, um, I think the easier it is to, to believe that and to lose sight of the, fact that a lot of parts of our lives bleed into each other and influence each other and that also we're more than maximization machines although I definitely you know at times need to maximize more <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I also think it's uh, kind of especially amongst overachieving people um, it can get really out of control and um, for other people it can legitimate I think behaviors that seem really oppressive right where we just have culture that expects everyone to be like at maximum productivity all the time. Like for what? For what are we at right. maximum productivity all the time?
0: It's right. super unforgiving if you have that documented, right?
1: Yeah. It's like yeah. we're trying to have like the hottest bod and produce the most billable hours and do all these things for other people's money making for, I mean, I don't know, like I, there are definitely benefits to it, but I think there also needs to be some kind of stepping back and asking questions
0: so your intuitions have put you know the finger on like the pulse of a lot of the criticism the public oh, yeah. criticism about this stuff you're totally on point i guess i'll just list off some of the, the some of the concerns people have about this you mm-hmm. know first and foremost the quality of the data mm-hmm. you know it's not all it promises to be and we assume at all times that these things are operating at their you know at their best and they may not be mm. the time and effort uh, that goes into capturing the data assumes kind of a level of privilege, right? Like if you're trying to if you're living paycheck to paycheck and working multiple jobs, mm-hmm. you know you don't want to stay up till three a.m. like inputting the food that you ate during oh. your like fifteen minute lunch hour. So, you know it just assumes a level of privilege to be able to devote time to this stuff. Mm-hmm. It causes you to prioritize things that may not necessarily be the best just because they're more quantifiable and mm-hmm. So much of these criticisms span a lot of other things, and there was a really great New Yorker article this week on criticisms of the the um, the GDP ah. and, like, the, the term the GDP, and it's super ubiquitous, um, but it's also super arbitrary and kind of absurd. Like, if you assume the growth that we, you know, like, that we're at right now, like, in X number of years, will be, like, a billion times more productive mm-hmm. <laughs> than we are now. So, like, so they don't capture everything, and... We don't necessarily think about the limitations of these things when Mm -hmm. we're, like, using this data. The goals you're pointed to might not be the best for you. Like, is 10,000 steps really the right thing for everyone regardless of their age, weight, and gender? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of the gender criticisms of of a lot of this technology because they're developed by men.
1: For them, um, <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and in the bigger picture, are we confident that the data that we're so willing to gather about ourselves is going to be safe and, like, not misused by others? So, like, yeah. this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of criticism, but I would I guess it's just, like, not stuff you think about regularly.
1: So on the whole, is this stuff good or bad? No, I don't know. I I mean, I, that's a really big question. I can't answer it right away. But um, I, I think that on the whole, it's got both in it. What concerns me is the w- the way it shapes our culture. And I think that there's so much valuable uh, stuff that we can do with these sort of quantifying apps and that sort of thing. Um, but everything has to be approached with like a really with your brain screwed on, you know, and yeah, and I think that a lot <laughs> of times that because of the way that these companies make money. It's really does not. It's not in their interest to ask us to think carefully through what happens to our data. Where a lot of these companies, that's what they really want is our data, not to sell us yeah. hardware, right? That's all fine and good. But what's more exciting is how many kind how many steps a day do these people in these demographic groups take? You know, in these parts of the world, and where do they go? That kind of thing. That's information that's so useful to them. So there's that. Um, but you know, like I said, at the same time. It, it can be empowering to have a sense of, you know, yourself in a way that is kind of a snapshot. So, yeah. Meh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: so let's wrap up this kind of background section. We know people have been gathering and using data about themselves for thousands of years, um, but rapid technological changes have enhanced our ability to do this today. Uh, like so many things in life, this is probably not necessarily singularly good or bad, but it probably mm. depends on – how you do this and your approach. And frankly, it also depends on security and who has access to the information about you.
1: Indeed, it does.
0: So, Maria, are we all cyborgs? <laughs>
1: <laughs> hmm. so a cyborg is a kind of combination of uh, organic and cybernetic beings so part human part machine basically um, which is how we would think about it when it comes to talking about ourselves and um yeah, why did we take a sudden left turn to cyborgs from Fitbits? Because, you know, it seems a little bit extreme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm really interested in this question because I think it's kind of one of the most fun aspects of all of our wearable technology now, um, mm-hmm. is that a lot of like sci-fi dreams about the future are starting to come true. And uh, I think a lot of times we don't really notice how quickly it's happening. at um, it all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Um and so there's a a theorist that um I definitely want to talk about because she's like so important and so interesting. Her name is Donna Haraway and she wrote um something called a cyborg manifesto, which she published in nineteen eighty-five originally, and then was like kind of part of this book that she published in the nineties. Um and she was uh, at the time she argued that we are already cyborgs. Um in part because you know, we do wear and carry around kind of technologies on us, and you gotta think, she's right in the 80s, so she's like, Yeah, I can't
0: believe she, gosh, she re- she said that in 1985. Like, yeah. I wonder what she would say now. Like, now we're like fully
1: robots, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but she's you know, it's her for her, it's not just the stuff that we wear, but more importantly, the kind of the leaky distinction between humans and machines that really came about in the 20th century. Um, and okay, her work. Um, grows out of that so that grows out of work that she was doing on the distinction between humans and animals and so she's looking at darwin our friend darwin really (laughs) shook up the way that everybody thought about what it meant to be human with his theories of evolution because you go from being divine divinely created placed on earth by god to you know evolved from animals and mm-hmm. so, you know, she was saying how by the time she was writing the 80s, that distinction between humans and animals is pretty much completely broken down. And people see themselves as animals, as a kind of animal, you know, d- distinct from other animals, but also an animal, right? Yeah. But um, what was really kind of special about the later part of the 20th century and totally true now is how much we start to think about ourselves as machines. Oh, wow. So it really is like a, a metaphor thing, right? So mm-hmm. there's... The thing where we actually have all these extensions of ourselves um, that are made up of machinery. But then there's also the way that we imagine ourselves. Um, And so, like, one of the most obvious ways to think about that would be, um, like, the metaphors that we use when we're talking about ourselves. So we'll talk about, like, processing information or needing to reboot something. And so we start to, like, borrow the language of machinery and especially computers now to talk about ourselves and our minds. Oh, my gosh.
0: Like, shut it down. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> totally. I've and, never thought about that before.
1: I, yeah, I find it so interesting. And, and we started to shift over to use the language of, like, kind of industrial machinery um, following mm-hmm. the Industrial Revolution. And in the 20th century, you know, talking about our bodies as machines in that way. And we still use that mm-hmm. kind of language, um, like, especially talking about, like, uh, like working out and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Like, he's a machine, for example, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that way of thinking about ourselves... I think is really important because it throws into question, I mean, by deciding that we are happy to use Fitbits all the time and that we're happy to quantify all these different parts of ourselves, it starts to throw into question what we even think it means to be human. Yeah. Which is like like the biggest question.
0: (laughs) Right. And especially because this was like, this like creeps up on us, right, over time. It's like nothing that happened overnight and it's certainly not like the encounters that people envisioned when they were like sci-fi fantasying about this, right? Like a lot of those movements were like the, you know, just like the creation of an artificial being at a particular moment that forced the hand of imagining or or reconciling the situation. And instead it's like bit by bit, like microprocessor by microprocessor and Mm -hmm. item by item, this is happening to us. Um, It's just really interesting because I haven't, given how much I engage with this stuff, I've thought very little about like the bigger picture.
1: It's really fun. I mean, I start. I taught um, a couple classes around these topics and it was just like my brain was exploding every day and it was so <laughs> yeah. fun to read about, so interesting. Um, and, you know, there's actually a lot of physical cyborgism around. So we see internal things like pacemakers, cochlear mm-hmm. implants, um, you know, More and more, we're seeing that as part of kind of medical practices. Um, And and we're taking that for granted that that's happening, but we don't treat those people like cyborgs. And it's also not that super common. Um, But some of the really interesting theory also is looking at things that we could put on and off, like eyeglasses Mm -hmm. or even like carrying around an external brain that you can put in your pocket, which has access to all kinds of information out there that's more than you ever would be able to carry inside of your own brain. Oh my gosh, like Google Glass. Yeah, or just like your phone, right? Yeah. There's another theorist who's an important media theorist from the 60s. I mean, let's talk about people thinking ahead of their time. He was writing about electronic media. Um, Marshall McLuhan is interested in the idea of media as extensions of the self. And so every, oh, wow. time, every time we adopt a new media as something that we're really kind of reliant upon and has totally entered into our lives, it rearranges what he calls our sense perceptions. And so the way yeah. that we engage with the world shifts because now we have this kind of extended part of ourself that makes it so we engage with the world differently. So like how many people, when they wake up in the morning, if they leave for work and realize they've forgotten their phone, about face and run back in and grab it, right? Yeah, totally. Because... You feel like some part of you is missing. Exactly. Because if you're used to having an extended brain, an extended ear, an extended mouth, so you can talk to people Language. far away, and you can hear from them, and you can find out information on the go, and all this other stuff, and suddenly you're expected to go your whole day without this like part of your body, it feels crazy. Like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, all this quantified self-movement stuff is really interesting to me because it is very much an adoption and a kind of embracing of... Thinking about ourselves as, at least in some ways, machine-like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I don't actually think is necessarily bad, but it is something that we should know that we're doing.
0: Right. Well, so many of the imagined encounters about this historically have been terrifying and alarming, mm-hmm. so it's hard not to put that value judgment on it, yeah, and to
1: feel like it, you know, it's a real encounter with basically aliens or something. <laughs> So, I mean, and I totally agree. Donna Haraway um, was actually, like, really into cyborgism. Um, And The Cyborg Manifesto is actually a feminist text. And her whole argument was basically, like, ladies, time to embrace cyborgism. This is the answer we've all been looking for uh, because it breaks us free from biological determinism. We're no longer bound to the expectations of our body. Um, That's real. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so once you can kind of see yourself as this part machine being that is not defined by family connections, marriage connections, Fertility. reproduction, yeah. exactly, yeah. then now all these opportunities open up to women uh, that weren't open to them before. Um, and yeah. in fact, can transform society, not just for women, but for everybody. So she actually saw this as this really hopeful uh, possibility. So I don't know. I mean, hearing about this, does this affect the way that you think about yourself as someone who is, you know, kind of part of a quantified self movement in a way?
0: I think I at least initially found this to be like a little scary because the bigger picture had escaped me. I was like so into like my phone and figuring myself out um, but I am, like, someone that, like, is, like, in love with self-help and self-improvement. <laughs> and so I think I probably, like, once once I got over, like, my initial ignorance and the shock of that, I actually feel okay about this. And I think the – my my main fear relates to the misuse of my own information. Mm. Like, someone will understand me better than I understand myself or someone who has access to this stuff. And I think other than that, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with becoming,
1: like, half-cyborg. That's, mostly cyborg that's so interesting i i think that's awesome i mean because basically what you're saying is you don't mind being a cyborg as long being part machine as long as no one else is holding the controls
0: oh yeah like 100 percent. like the borg in star trek i could just go on and on about them like um, the borg are only scary in that they follow the mission of the person in charge exactly
1: yeah that's so true and i don't know i what about you yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, what's so scary about these visions of cyborg futures is often that we will be programmable from the outside. Yeah. Um, and I, I know I'm, I forced you to read this YA novel um, feed by yes. M.T. Anderson, <laughs> which I just adore. I teach it. Um, I like recommend it to everyone. But basically, it's, right, it's this, I, about being part cyborg and thinking that you have control over yourself. But the ways in which consumer culture actually totally infiltrates your mind and makes it so that what you want is been has been totally fed into you essentially. Exactly fed into you by yeah. outside influences and like that's not what you want, right?
0: Yeah, we should totally link to the book. It's a great
1: read, and I thank you for bringing that into my life. Oh. <laughs> While we have been collecting data on ourselves for a long time as human beings, um, our time now is special in that we not only have access to so much more information about ourselves, but we've actually started to think of ourselves as machines in a sense, and particularly as computers. This has huge ramifications for what it means to be a person today and could seriously influence how people think about what it means to be a person in the future too. So we'll get to that next.
0: all of this is like kind of leading to the biggest question of, of them all and today is totally a macro day. Um <laughs> like what what does the future of all of this look like? How does how do how does us like putting on a Fitbit and checking our phones like incrementally lead to something bigger?
1: Yeah, I I love the way that today has gone from the most micro, which is like one step <laughs> marked on our little tally on our phone, um, yep. to the super macro, which is like, what does it mean to be human and where are we all going? Um, and <laughs> I feel that we cannot talk about cyborgs and quantifying ourselves without talking about the singularity. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you may have come across at some point this guy, Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist. He's an inventor and a thinker and all kinds of stuff. Um, he now works for Google, of course. And he suggests that the end game to all of this uh, that we're talking about is You got it, immortality. And so he believes, and he's working on the possibility of like maximizing the body's health potentials and working with artificial intelligence to eventually merge with machines so that we will never die. So, yes. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's like kind of the logical conclusion of wanting to, you know, be the most in shape and the most healthy and the most mindful and the most all these other things, is to, you know, be so maximal that you never die.
0: It also sounds like such a dude thing. Oh, my God, Like I know. a
1: dude dream, like a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even get me started on the demographics of the uh, community that is involved in um, this kind of futurist thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's actually, oh, my God, there's, like, an amazing Tumblr called, like, White Dudes Wearing Google Glass I recommend. Yeah, of course I recommend. yeah
0: no it's so real so um, so anyway real.
1: so so yeah I mean basically the singularity the idea of the singularity is that in the very near future, based on the exponential rate of technological development, we are going to merge with computers and be kind of permanently from here on out part and potentially completely <laughs> machine. yeah yeah. Live in um, a dream. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's basically, <laughs> he, he builds on something called Moore's Law, which talks about like the kind of rate of um, kind of computer uh, advancements. And he's looking at things like, you know, computing speeds, memory storage capacity, uh, global telecommunications reach. All of that stuff is kind of increasing and and speeding up so rapidly that he's arguing that within... Less than 30 years, uh, between 2030s and sometime around 2045, we're going to be merged with machines completely. So here's what I guess creeps me out about it the most, um, is you know there's a story about how he's trying to bring his dad back to life. Um, and I think it really relates to the quantified self um, because basically what it is is he's gathered up all the output from his life, his dad's life, like his letters, documents, photos, and that kind of thing, and taken all this information and is trying to kind of recreate his personality and his mind from all of these mm-hmm. bits of information. Um, and he wants to make a clone from his DNA also so he can like kind of whack that mind into the body. Um, and then there's this one article where he gets interviewed about it. He says... Um, and I'm quoting here, you can certainly argue that philosophically, that is not your father. That is a replica, but I can actually make a strong case that it would be more like my father than my father would be were he to live. And, oh, that's so creepy. And I know, exactly, because I'm, I'm like, wait, but but it's not your father. So all it does is make you feel good about the idea that you're around your father Maybe it would have made your father feel good to think that there would be some legacy of him that lives on, but he wouldn't know anything about it.
0: It's just so interesting because, like, we've been jokingly saying that this is forcing our hand and making us talk about, like, who we are, what are we, whatever, but, like, that question is clearly the next thought that comes to mind after you hear something like that. Like, really, truly, who are we?
1: hmm Exactly. Uh, it
0: can't be that. We can't be the product of our you know uh, quantifiable outputs Mm -hmm. and our DNA like there's more to our souls than that and maybe that's like the spiritual me talking
1: no totally I mean it's like that question of like if you have a ship that leaves a port and you replace every single item on the ship over the course of its travels is it the same ship when it gets back you know I don't know whoa (laughs) (laughs) oh amazing yeah so I don't know I mean There's definitely a lot of kind of raced, classed, gendered stuff going on with this particular community. Um, And like you said, it it does feel like the concerns of people who have a lot of things going for them now worrying about mortality, which sure people have worried about for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I, I do think there's something kind of beautiful in the human striving to live forever, but I think part of what makes it beautiful is its inevitable tragedy. And to me, there's something kind of perverse in the idea that like that they might succeed. It just seems uncanny to me, but maybe I'm too bound to my to my animal self. <laughs> so okay. While we're in the midst of the day-to-day of trying to gather and use data to understand ourselves individually, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who are thinking about our society's broader future. For some, like Ray Kurzweil, that means merging with machines. Really, all these questions are nudging us to the bigger questions at hand. So, who are we? What are we? Where do we want to go? Do we want to live forever? I don't know. I bet you didn't put on your Fitbit this morning thinking it was turning you into a robot. But maybe it is. (laughs) You know that di
0: It's likely that we'll continue to have more access than ever to technologies that will help us gather information to improve ourselves so easy to get an iOS update and start to use a new kind of application. But in the aggregate, it's also super useful to think about what you want to get out of any one of these applications or technologies and to really think about the bigger picture of where we're headed as a society if we continue to use them. Mm-hmm. It's also important to think about the
1: limitations of any given piece of technology. I totally agree. I also think it's worth pausing and asking ourselves, how does this culture of the quantified self contribute to the frantic need to be productive? Why do we even want to maximize ourselves? There are some serious overlaps here between, you know, the most intimate personal parts of ourselves and capitalist theories of maximization. This is especially true since a lot of these technologies feed directly into a corporate system that's totally monetizing our data. We live in a society that prizes production and maximization, goal-setting and achieving. You know, these aren't bad things, but what about contemplation, learning for its own sake, compassion, generosity, pursuit of art, and beauty, I think it's worth taking time to think about that stuff and making sure we have space for it in our lives too.
0: Totally fair. And thank you, Maria. That's like, that totally, totally resonates. But also, you know,
1: feminist robot's good. (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right. Want to shut this down? Totally. Questions, comments, ideas? We'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. Seriously, please.
0: In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the unrivaled Aaron taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.